0: You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of March 2nd, 2023. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Lakewood opens first extreme weather sheltering. By Andrew Fraley for the Jeffco Transcript. World Thinking Day teaches Girl Scouts about other countries. By Deb Hurley-Bropes for the Jeffco Transcript. Safe Parking Initiative in Lakewood Helping with Vehicular Homelessness. By Andrew Fraley for the Jeffco Transcript. Hundreds flock to Old Town Arvada for Fat Tuesday. Fourth annual Arvada Mardi Gras kickoff met with fanfare, guerrilla, and otherwise. By Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press. Housing Complex for Youth opens in Arvada. By Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press. Goldenite Corner. New chief ready to lead GFD through Moment of Change, by Corinne Westman, for the Golden Transcript. Lakewood Opens First Extreme Weather Sheltering, by Andrew Ferelli. The temperature once again dropped below zero in Lakewood last week. But this time around, the city opened its own emergency overflow shelter for people experiencing homelessness and needing a warm place to stay. The city announced that the Whitlock Recreation Center could would have 50 beds available, open overnight for February 22nd and February 23rd. For the previous cold weather events in December and January, the only options were the Severe Weather Shelter Network and one or two additional churches that opened up, including Pastor Ben Hensley's Lakewood United Methodist Church. The SWSN covers the bulk of Jefferson County, consisting of three churches with 40 beds each, opening when the temperature drops below 32 degrees and there is moisture, or below 20 regardless to moisture. It also requires registration before arriving and a background check. Hensley, critical of the SWSN's entrance requirements, doesn't see it as an effective response and is proud of Lakewood for opening its own. He thinks the extreme weather pushes the SWSN beyond its capacity, its capability to help because of, quote, this very high bar to even get in. If you're on drugs or in a state of chronic homelessness, that makes them nervous or makes them unable to deal with you. You're screwed, he continued. In December, knowing that that was the case, we kind of just opened up. According to Lakewood Mayor Adam Paul, the city opening its own emergency response has been in the works since December's extreme weather. The blind spots became evident in December when Ben opened his church, and we knew that wasn't going to be a sustainable option, he said. Acknowledging a similar sentiment to Hensley that people who need shelter may not be able to get into the SWSN nor get vouchers. The two options he sees in the city, he said, There's a segment of the population that isn't going to fit into either of those. So so this will be that stopgap. Paul expects that this emergency sheltering will continue in the city. But being a new program for the city, the details such as what temperatures it will be, it will open for moving forward, are still being worked out. For the SWSN, Executive Director of Development, Lynn Ann Huitzing, has told the Jeffco transcript in the past that the background checks are meant to protect volunteers and guests from people with, quote, violent offenses against other persons in the last year. We do not want to enable. We want to empower, Hoitzing has said about their temperature cutoffs. Believing opening at any warmer temperatures would not, quote, encourage people to pursue answers. That would lead them off the street. And if they get too comfortable, they just don't have any reason to try and pursue anything else. I'm very, end quote, quote, I'm very excited and proud of Lakewood for the fact that their city staff funding is doing this, Hensley said criticizing county and municipality bureaucracy that he believes has hindered steps in Lakewood opening shelters in the past. At the end of the day, all of this structure and bureaucracy completely gets in the way of saving people's lives. Safe Parking Initiative in Lakewood Helping with Vehicular Homelessness by Andrew Fraley Almost 30 people have found refuge in the parking lot of the Lakewood United Methodist Church for what, for many, is the first stage of a longer fall into homelessness, vehicular homelessness. The church is currently the only participant in the city's pilot program, bringing the statewide Colorado Safe Parking Initiative, meant to give people having to sleep in their car a safe place to park for the night into Lakewood. The council heard a six-month update on February 13th, and according to Pastor Ben Hensley of that church, it's not only going well for the people, but for the church too. We wanted to put some of our money and our property where our mouth was. At a church, in terms of what we profess our faith, we need to be part of the solution, Hensley told the Jeffco transcript. The initiative was first started in 2019 by two Denver residents and by the end of 2022 had 11 lots in five of the seven metro areas with four in Jefferson County, including the church in Lakewood. There is no shortage of people who could use the lot either. According to a 2019 month-long homelessness count across Jefferson County, almost 500 people were homeless in Lakewood alone with about 1,000 people total and 200 living in their cars in the county as a whole. The ultimate goal is to help people get out of living in their car and into a more supportive system, Mayor of Lakewood Adam Paul said. It's also to add another immediate tool to address homelessness, he said, which has certainly risen since 2019. Rising rent prices have led to an increase in homelessness across the state as a whole, especially as rental prices have outpaced the the rising of minimum wage, with almost 60% of a minimum wage worker's paycheck expected to go to a landlord. This increase in spread of people affected is something Hensley has witnessed through those who have stayed at the church's lot, including elderly participants priced out of their homes and even families with children. If you're new to homelessness, perhaps you just got evicted or you just lost housing in some way, you still have a car and still need to have a job, Hinsley said. If you don't even have a stable place to sleep, then it's a ticking time bomb until you lose your job because you can't do your job with no sleep. The program started in Lakewood in July through the council approving an ordinance for a two year pilot version of the initiative. Hensley said the program has gone well, and he knows it's effective, as 13 people have moved on to more secure forms of housing. It is worth mentioning that our safe parking residents have actively prevented some crime on our property and have been great neighbors, he added. One example he gave is a participant stopping someone from throwing a rock through the church's window, but other burglars and vandals burglaries and vandals have been stopped from participants being in the lot. I also like the idea of how it kind of short circuits people's arguments about homelessness being a form of crime or when their presence just means there's more crime, which isn't true. He explained in our case, it actually creates less crime. The issue now brought up by the council, as well as Paul and Hensley is expanding the program. I think this is a great program. One is a sad number. I think we can do much better here. And I think we've seen there's a lot of benefits to this. Councilmember Jeslyn Chalrazé commented in the February 13th meeting. Hensley has tried to speak to other churches, he explained, but he understands there's, quote, a lot of reasonable fear and insecurity around any church making a decision to do something like this. Send me to anyone that may be interested because I really believe in the effectiveness of this program, he continued. World Thinking Day teaches Girl Scouts about other countries by Deb Hurley-Brobst. Girl Scouts from around the metro area were thinking about the world on February 25th. From daisies to ambassadors, about 250 scouts from 26 troops operated tables representing 30 countries at World Thinking Day. It's an annual event. to teach them about different countries' cultures and scouts in all parts of the world. Each table in the gymnasium at Red Rocks Elementary School in Morrison had a poster with information about the country with some girls dressed in costume, and they handed out food or trinkets representing their countries. Scouts moved from table to table to expand their worldly horizons, and each had a mock passport that was stamped at each table. Troop leaders say the World Thinking Day gives the scouts memories that will last a lifetime while teaching leadership and collaboration as the girls prepare for their presentations. It's important for scouts to learn about other countries, said Jenny Kyle, a parent of a Red Rocks elementary school student. They get a better understanding of the many different people and cultures around the world. Lori Luger's a leader for Troop 8090 at Skyview Academy in Highlands Ranch, agreed and added, it taught them to research their country and to vote on the country they wanted to represent. They learned team building when they practiced dances, and it brought them together when they planned and put together their display. Michelle Kustis, leader of Troop 1104 at Parmalee Elementary School in Indian Hills, said World Thinking Day was more important this year after its absence thanks to the pandemic. Among the countries represented at World Thinking Day were Brazil. Juniors in Troop 1104 taught fellow scouts about the Amazon rainforest and interesting animals. Scout Emilia Vega explained that she really likes Brazilian music. Malta. The scouts in Troop 68220 in Lakewood knew where the country was located, and they served a Maltese bean dip to other scouts. Malta, they said, has the Malta Girl Guides, which is similar to Girl Scouts. New Zealand. The Brownies in Troop 67377 from Red Rocks Elementary School in Morrison wore skirts and headbands and talked about sheep, which are raised in the country. New Zealand was the first country to give women the right to vote. Japan Troop 65499 juniors from Bear Creek Elementary School knew about the Shiba Inu dog breed, Pokemon, and more, and they sported beautiful fans. Poland Juniors in Skyview Academy's Troop 8090 provided samples of sausages and cheese, plus koloshkis, which they made from a recipe from a scout's grandmother. They explained that modern makeup, cotton swabs, walkie-talkies, and more came from Poland. France. Scouts and Troop 68094 at Stone Mountain Elementary School in Highlands Ranch learned French words and served croissants to fellow scouts. At a prior meeting, they tried crepes. It's important to learn about different cultures. Brownie Fiona Whitney said while wearing her French beret. Fellow Brownie Macy Milkey added, and we're having fun. Hundreds flocked to Old Town Arvada for Fat Tuesday. Fourth annual Arvada Mardi Gras kickoff met with fanfare, Gorilla, and otherwise by Riley Dunn. The streets of Old Town, Arvada were awash in gold, green, and purple on February 21st to celebrate the 4th annual Mardi Gras in the Historic District, just in time for Fat Tuesday. About 300 merrymakers joined in on the celebratory kickoff march, sponsored by CenturyLink, which featured brass band performances from Gorillac Fanfare, who've become regulars at the event as folks marched, marched from Carly's Boutique on Grandview to Denver Beer Company on Old Wadsworth. With all 12 band members in attendance, a self-proclaimed rarity, Gorilla fanfare broke into spirited renditions of Dua Lipa's Levitating. The next episode by Dr. Dre and other contemporary pop songs. As folks marched and danced, old town businesses got in on the festivities as well, offering up Louisiana staples and Mardi Gras specialties throughout the evening. Old Town Business Improvement District Executive Director Joe Hanksler said he's excited about how much the event has grown over the years. This event has continued to grow year after year, and it is always encouraging to see the ma- the community come out in mass to support Old Town and our businesses, Hinksler said. There was great energy throughout Old Town Tuesday night with so many businesses offering specials and people really getting into the spirit of Mardi Gras. Hinksler added that sometimes it can be challenging event to have in the middle of the week and in the middle of winter, but luckily this time the weather cooperated. I think businesses had a good night, which I know they appreciated, he said. We definitely need to thank Gorilla Fanfare for providing such stellar entertainment and CenturyLink for pro- supporting this event, as well as the BID board of directors who are always trying to find new and creative ways to support the district. While many local businesses offered up traditional Mardi Gras cocktails like Hurricanes and Sazeracs, Schoolhouse's Hurricane was talk of the town, some took it a step further. Schoolhouse had a special crawfish boil that drew rave reviews. The Arvada Tavern went all out with gumbo, jambalaya, stuffed peppers, and beignets. Elevated seltzer debuted gator bites and muffaletta sandwiches. Po boys were served at So Radish, vegan naturally. Sticks and smoking fins. Rhinelander Bakery served up their ever-popular king cakes. Housing Complex for Youth Opens in Arvada, by Riley Dunn. Amid a growing housing crisis in Jefferson County and Arvada's contentious relationship toward homelessness, a new affordable housing apartment complex, AVI at Old Town, opened its doors to residents in February. The complex, the result of a collaboration between Foothills Regional Housing and Casa of Jefferson and Gilpin features one hundred one and two-bedroom apartment units, 30 for youth emancipating from foster care, 10 for unhoused veterans and Jeffco, and the remaining 60 for people making between 30% to 70% of the area median income, or under $65,660 a year for a two-person household. AVI at Old Town replaces the Allison Village, an existing Foothills Regional Housing-owned property that had 37 units. Construction began on August 21, 2022 and wrapped in December, following major delays caused by issues with an Excel natural gas line. The completed complex features outdoor areas, patios, a playground, a dog and bike wash station, free covered parking, and common spaces, CASA says it will use to provide support and self-sufficiency resources to the youth residents of Avi. Avi. Lori Rosendahl, the chief operating officer at Foothills Regional Housing, said her team completed a pilot program over the last few years that included 22 youths exiting the foster program. Their team found that more than just needing a place to stay, youth needed direction and support in order to become self-sufficient. It was hard to provide any real group support and around, Rosendahl said of the pilot program. We're trying to develop this program at the same time we're trying to house these 22 youths all over the place. We learned a lot in two years and we might not have had the opportunity to learn until much later. Rosenthal added that the focus is housing, but also the need to cater to the individual or family's needs to help them be stably and successfully housed by offering resources outside of just a home. Our aha moment with the pilot program was, we're going to really change our intentionality to person-based, family-based, instead of the square box of, here's a place you can live in, she said. To that end, Common spaces and kitchens in Avai at Old Town will feature classes on managing finances, cooking, and job coaching. Youth residents, the development aims to serve people between the ages of 18 and 24. That is not a steadfast requirement, though, will each have a service plan and a coach they'll work on the plan with to set goals in key areas and complete the program, which aims to result in self sufficiency. Serving older youth who are in child welfare or are exiting child welfare has always been what we at Casa Gilpin have had as part of our permanent programming, Kristen Guides Foothills Regional Housing Chief People Officer said. This collaboration and moving into the area of trying to get youth into stable housing so they can start attending to those other things they need to do to be self-sufficient adults through our pilot program we found at out that it's really a process the project was funded through a number of resources including state tax credits private activity bonds from jefferson county funding from the cities of golden arvada and wheat ridge division of housing grants hud funds and some of frh's own capital and a loan from first bank Gines said her team conducted community outreach and found an overwhelmingly positive response from people who live in the surrounding communities. The feedback was very positive. Gines said, I think the population and generation that's coming in the inn that resides in Old Town, Nevada understands the need for affordable housing. They're seeing it themselves, knowing that we're serving potentially their brother, their sister, their aunts, them, even, with an affordable place to live, which they can put their feet on the ground, be stable and focus on other things besides paying rent, maybe their food, Rosendahl continued. It was well embraced by the community members. Rosendahl said, Avai at Old Town will be a great asset to the surrounding community. It is proven that, a healthy, community, that healthy communities are those that people can live and work in. Gaines said. We also know that many young adults who have transitioned out of foster care lack the safety net of parents to fall back on if they are unable to make it on their own. We are happy to be their safety net by providing housing with robust services on site. Our veterans deserve the best housing options, and we know providing housing with services gives them a greater chance at successfully staying housed, Gaines continued. Youth and veteran units are available by referral from CASA or the VA only, according to FRH's Grants and Communications Director, Ashley Knoll. People who are eligible to apply for the other 60 units can do so at the Complex's website. Again, that's A-V-I at Old Town. GoldenEye Corner New Chief Ready to Lead GFD Through Moment of Change by Corinne Westman For Casey Beale, becoming Golden Fire Department's Chief was a dream that didn't come true right away. He interviewed for the job in 2018 and didn't get it, but he kept in touch with the city. When the opportunity to become its Deputy Chief of Operations opened in fall of 2021, he took the job And moved to Golden. He was named interim chief last fall, and in February, the city announced him as Golden's next fire chief. He now leads GFD's dozen paid staff members and about 55 volunteer firefighters. Beale's excited and ready to lead the department through what he called a huge moment of change as GFD reevaluates its structuring, staffing needs, finances, and policies and procedures. This department has a long and proud history, and I want to add it, add to it in a positive way, Beal said february twenty third. I'm really happy and excited to be here. Beal has been a firefighter for more than thirty years. He has a bachelor's degree in emergency services administration, is a paramedic, and holds certifications for chief fire officer and executive fire administrator. Before joining Golden, he helped lead a fire department in Surrey, England, for two years. After spending so much of his career in larger agencies, he said he appreciates a smaller department where he knows everyone, and it's, quote, small enough to feel like a family. Being at GFD has also given him a chance to have, quote, one foot in operations and one foot in administration, which he said he's always liked. As chief, Beal's biggest task is examining the department's future. He's part of a city council subcommittee following up on a 2021 cooperative services study to see whether or how local fire departments could merge or share resources. Beal said the initial study looked at Golden, Fairmount, and Pleasant View, but didn't make any recommendations. So the subcommittees re-examining those three departments, plus Arvada and Metro West, and is quote looking to come to a conclusion sometime in April, he explained. We're taking huge steps together with the city of Golden, Beal said of GFD, adding that the department is now, quote, less of an island and is making decisions in tandem with city leadership. Additionally, the chief, as chief Beal has several goals for GFD. They include updating Current policies and procedures and reevaluating the organizational chart to address the separation between volunteer and paid firefighters. Regarding the latter, Beale said he wants to build one department, one team. He feels there's too much separation between paid and volunteer firefighters, and people on the same shift aren't always communicating with each other. Thus, his goal is to make sure everyone's on the same page and improve accountability and communication. Lieutenant Jeff Hulse and firefighter Jamie Emif, who've been with GFD since 2009 and 2021, respectively, were excited to see Beale at the helm. They described him as someone who's honest, fair, and approaches issues pragmatically. He's a big-picture thinker, Emif said. He thinks about all levels of the organization— Hulse said that Beal's appointment, quote, starts the ball rolling on a lot of changes and updates at GFD, adding it's hard to take ownership as the interim chief. Hulse wanted to see Beal addressing staffing needs via a recruitment and retention so firefighters can provide Golden Knights with the best best care possible. He and Emif believe Beal will be a great leader for GFD With Emif adding how Beal's depth of experience and good communication are great assets for the department. He'll help us navigate what could be bumpy waters, he said. Want to recommend someone for Goldenite Corner? This recurring section will profile Golden community members and their interesting or unique endeavors, whether it be an event, goal, project, hobby, or life in general. To recommend someone for the Goldenite Corner, email... C Westeman, W-E-S-T-E-M-A-N, at coloradocommunitymedia.com. Meet Hope Dealers, behind Denver's Dream Center. The facility mostly works with people who were formerly incarcerated. By Dana Knowles and Will Peterson, Rocky Mountain PBS. For the Denver Dream Center, hope is a commodity that can't be sold. It's routinely given away at no charge. I'm a hope dealer, explained Donnie Andrews, who works at the organization. We go out and rescue people and restore lives and dreams. The Denver Dream Center mainly works with formerly incarcerated people who leave prison and end up without a place to live after their release, something Andrews understands personally. I was released on May 11th of last year and was connected with the Dream Center, and they helped me put my life back together, explained Andrews, adding that he needed to learn basic life skills. It's rough getting out of prison after 33 years of incarceration and not knowing how to use a phone and not knowing how to go grocery shopping. According to the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, formerly incarcerated people are almost 10 times more likely to experience homelessness than the general population. After spending time in and out of prison for several years, then experiencing homelessness, Tyrone Tompkins told Rocky Mountain PBS how excited he is to finally move into his own home soon. I'll be moving into an apartment on the 1st of March, the day of my birthday. He said, excitedly, crediting the Denver Dream Center for making it happen. Now, Tompkins works for the organization as a part of the street team that does direct outreach with the unhoused in Denver, many of whom were formerly incarcerated, like Tompkins. "'It's time for me to go back out into the community that I was destroying and help,' he said. "'It has changed my life, and I am truly blessed.'" Brian Sederwall moved to Denver 16 years ago and immediately saw the necessity to connect those experiencing homelessness with not only resources, but also hope and inspiration. We say, see a need, then meet the need. We do everything from helping men and women transition from incarceration or get out of gangs and get back to community and reestablish their families said Cedar Wall. These days, Cedarwall is affectionately known as Pastor B. People ask me, as a pastor, where's my church? I tell them to look at the city, and that's our church. It's the people, he said. It's not just on Sundays, but we hyper-focus on Monday through Saturday by building a community. The organization provides continuous support for the unhoused to also address issues including hunger, addiction, and abuse. And according to Pastor B, the best way to do that is by finding people who, where they are, and just starting a simple conversation. Someone will be embarrassed about their story or their background, and they'll share that, and someone else will be like, yeah, me too. So it's no longer baggage, but it becomes a platform for them to move forward and be successful. This story is from Rocky Mountain PBS. A nonprofit public broadcaster providing community stories across Colorado over the air and online, used by permission. For more and to support Rocky Mountain PBS, visit rmpbs.org. Winter Planning for Your Vegetable Garden Local Voices Guest column by Katie Meyer. There's no better way to beat the winter blues than by dreaming of this season's garden. Whether you just have a small garden or a backyard full of raised beds, it's time to start planning what you will grow. Before choosing your plants, there are a few things to consider about your space, including size, location, soil, and amount of daylight it receives. If your space is cool and shady, It's not worth the agony of trying to grow peppers and tomatoes in Denver's short growing season. Instead, stick with hardy greens like spinach, kale, or roots like radishes, potatoes. If you have a sunny spot on a porch or a patio, you can grow a container variety of tomatoes where they'll have a better chance. Small gardens can produce more than you might think. Many seed packets and plant tags list the maximum amount of space a plant or crop might need. If you take this route, think about putting your taller, tallest plants on the north side of the bed so they don't shade the others. This method is also easier if you're transplanting, so you don't have to worry about the timing of getting seeds to sprout and grow before they get shaded out. Interplanting or companion planting is all a great option for dense gardens. Try growing basil under tomatoes or transplant lettuce, and then seed carrots around them. By the time the lettuce is ready to harvest, the carrots will be up and ready for the extra space. Herbs and edible flowers and variety and attract beneficial pollinators to your garden. If you're planting densely, particularly with heavy feeders like broccoli, corn or melons, you'll want to make sure they have enough nutrients. Cover crops are a great way to keep your soil covered between crops, and the leftover debris will boost your organic matter and feed the microorganisms that are so important to soil health. Including legumes, like peas or beans, in your cover crop will naturally add nitrogen to your soil. Adding compost is another way to give your soil a natural boost. Try using a natural mulch between rows or beds to retain moisture and exclude weeds. If you have heavy clay or thin, rocky soils, you don't want to try growing foot-long carrots. Try building raised beds or opting for a shorter variety. Where sandy soils drain water and lose nutrients quickly, clay soils retain water and hold nutrients much longer. Consider this when adding amendments and planting, planting your garden watering. Smaller seeds like lettuce or carrots will germinate more evenly if they have consistent overhead water but beans squash and tomatoes don't like their leaves being wet because they are more susceptible to disease once your seeds are up or plants are in the ground try setting up soaker hoses or drip irrigation so you're only watering the soil and not the leaves nutrient-dense product produce comes from plants grown in healthy soils in harmony with nature Avoid spraying herbicides or pesticides as these will negatively affect the soil and water and therefore you. Instead, encourage birds and predatory insects to control any pest problems and pull weeds by hand. Additionally, heirloom varieties tend to have more flavor, ensure genetic diversity and have been bred to grow in specific climates. Search for local seed companies to find the best option for your area. Not only does this support a local farmer, but you'll be able to also save your own seed. Katie Meyer is a grower at the Denver Botanic Gardens Chatfield Farms. Colorado Dragon Boat Film Festival celebrates AAPI stories. Coming attractions by Clark Reader. Proving the power of storytelling has been part of the Colorado Dragon Boat Film Festival since its inception, and this year it is taking the time to celebrate all the voices that share their stories. Our theme this year is Celebrating Our Stories, which follows last year's theme of Celebrating Resilience, explained Sarah Moore, Colorado Dragon Boat Executive Director. The stories we're sharing may not usually be heard or seen, which means projecting them on the big screen provides awesome potential for connection. The 8th Annual Colorado Dragon Boat Film Festival, hosted by Colorado Dragon Boat and Denver Film, opens Thursday, March 9th, and runs through Sunday the 12th at Z Film Center, 2510 East Colfax Avenue. And The Friar, Newman Center at Denver Botanic Gardens, 1085 York Street in Denver. The festival includes 11 films, all of which honor the experiences of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, AAPI communities. Highlights include the opening night film, Arnold is a Model Student, which is described and provided information as a satirical coming-of-age story examining contemporary Thai culture through the lens of the country's youth. Another important film screening in is Reclaiming Denver's Chinatown, a documentary about the racism Chinese residents faced in the Mile High City. And for the first time, the festival will wrap up at the Denver Botanic Gardens with a screening of I Am What I Am, an animated film about a teenage boy who wants to learn the art of traditional Chinese lion dancing. As is so often the case with film festivals, some of the most exciting events are extracurricular activities that enhance the movies. Of note are two community conversations the festival is hosting. At 11 a.m. on Saturday, March 11th, celebrating the stories of our LGBTQ plus Asian American Pacific Islander community will be held. And at 11 a.m. on Sunday, March 12th, audiences can participate in celebrating the stories of our multiracial AAPI community. These topics come from listening to the community, which provides us with so many options, Moore said. Over the last three years, we've seen huge increases in hate, racism, and intolerance, and we're trying to fight this in many ways. Community conversations are great ways to help because they give people the opportunity to hear stories and make these issues less known less unknown. In addition to live Q&As with filmmakers following some screenings, there will also be an Asian marketplace and culinary experience available to those who attend with an appetite. No matter how audiences want to engage with the festival, more hopes they'll come with questions and willingness to learn. The beauty of the event is bringing people together every year to show that the stories we all share have so many similarities, she said, People can come together and feel a real sense of warmth and acceptance. And that's really my goal for the festival. For information, individual tickets and passes, visit cdfilm.org. Find space for Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson at the Paramount. Even those who don't really find space all that interesting, I'm told that's a thing can find something fascinating about exploration or of the unknown when Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson speaks about it. Tyson will be stopping by the Paramount Theater, 1621 Glenarm Place in Denver at 7.30 p.m. on Wednesday, March 8th. The topic for the evening's discussion will be cosmic collisions, which has all kinds of potential to be properly mind-blowing. Purchase tickets at Ticketmaster.com. Watch the Oscars with fellow film lovers at Z Film Center, S-I-E Film Center. The Oscars are back to honor some of the year's best films, though I am personally outraged that Babylon didn't receive a Best Picture nomination. As has become tradition, Denver Film is celebrating the year in movies with a big party, just like the one in Babylon. The Brightest Night in Hollywood begins at 5.30 p.m. on Sunday, March 12th at Z Film Center, 2510 East Colfax Avenue in Denver. Attendees are encouraged to either get fully decked out or come in their comfiest pajamas and enjoy live screening on all three of the center's screens, with drink specials at the bar and food specials also available. The event is free, so visit denverfilm.eventive.org. Slash films to RSVP for a spot. And Clark's Concert of the Week, Nathaniel Ratliff plays Nilsson with the Colorado Symphony at Betcher Concert Hall. Singer songwriter Harry Nilsson is one of those musicians who doesn't receive the recognition they so rightly deserve. His music has been the inspiration for so many legendary artists, including Denver's Nathaniel Ratliff. To mark the 50th anniversary of a little touch of Nielsen, Nielsen's tribute to the great American songbook. Ratliff is teaming up with Colorado Symphony to tackle this seminal album. Nathaniel Ratliff plays Nielsen with the Colorado Symphony will be held at Betcher Concert Hall, one thousand Fourteenth Street, number fifteen in Denver at seven thirty p.m. on Friday, March third, and Saturday, March fourth. Visit coloradosymphony.org for tickets and information. Clark Reader's column on Culture appears on a weekly basis, and he can be reached at reader at hotmail.com. Local Life, Stewards of the River's Recovery. Scientists are studying the health of the Sat- South Platts Aquatic Life. By Bellin Ward. There might be plenty of fish in the sea, but in the section of the South Platte River from the Denver Metro Water Facility down to Fort Lupton, they've all but disappeared. Through testing, Metro Water Recovery scientists discovered that aquatic life was not present in this part of the South Platte River due to low dissolved oxygen levels. Metro Water Recovery, in an agreement with Colorado Parks and Wildlife, The United States Environmental Protection Agency and the Colorado Health Department will address the issue. Dissolved oxygen levels mean the river is too low for aquatic life. When they did the study, the scientists found that the South Platte River from the Denver Metro Water Facility down to Fort Lupton had no fish habitat. They started a six-phase project on the South Platte River from 88th and Colorado Boulevard to Fort Lupton in 2018 to improve aquatic life that was disappearing from low dissolved oxygen. Many factors cause dissolved oxygen in a river such as runoff, nutrients, and how highly managed the river is, and flowing slowly in some locations. In addition, algae grow when the river slows down and eats up oxygen at night said Denver Quality Manager for Metro Water, Jim Dorsch. A number of factors were involved, and since Metro Water created the river, it made sense for us to take the lead on trying to correct it, Dorsch said. Scientists are working daily on the South Platte River, collecting aquatic macroinvertebrates, which are bugs, Many of these types of organisms and microhabitats live in the river under rocks or in woody debris in the river, Dorsch said, adding that they can also live inside rocks or live in boulders. The objective is to sample the macroinvertebrate that lives at the bottom of the river to assess the invertebrate, which is species without a backbone, to test their diversity and abundance within the river channel and determine overall aquatic life health. Said Jordan Harmon, a senior water quality scientist with Metro Denver. Harmon said the macroinvertebrate data is used in Colorado as the primary indicator of aquatic life, health in streams and rivers. They collect samples in the fall, and the macroinvertebrates are picked out with tweezers and placed into collection jars filled with isopropyl alcohol for preservation. We then send these preserved specimen samples to a taxonomic expert and they identify and count the macroinvertebrates and send the identification enumeration data back to us. This is simply identification of preserved specimens. They are not looking at live specimens, Harmon said. The scientists could get a general sense of overall water quality based on the type of invertebrates. Certain microinvertebrates are sensitive to pollution, such as mayflies, caddisflies, and more. Bugs that are relatively tolerant of pollution include aquatic worms, midge larvae, and more, according to Harmonid Dorsch. When we observe a diverse group of microinvertebrates, including sensitive species, this indicates good water quality. Dissolved oxygen is just one important aspect of overall water quality, Harman said. Harman said these macroinvertebrates tell them what they do and a lot about water quality. If certain kinds of bugs are present, the water quality can sustain these macroinvertebrates and they're also an essential part of the food chain for the fish that consume these bugs. We amended that agreement, and since then, we built four different drop structure locations along the river to improve habitats, and we'll select a fifth spot to construct by fall. Then, when complete, we will go into a phase six and continue ongoing monitoring of aquatic life forever at these locations, Dor said. Torch said to improve the water quality, stirring it and building miniature waterfalls to put the oxygen back in the river over time so it starts to get better. In addition, they will place large rocks that will provide protective cover for fish, create pools close to the bank of the fast-moving water. Trees will be plants, planted and shrubs for aquatic shade and creates a riparian zone, which is a vegetation area between land and river. The Metro Water Recovery scientists will stock the river with Colorado native species, primarily minnows, they said. They're not very big, but we love our native species and want to protect them every chance we can, Dorsh said. We also target Johnny Darters and Iowa Darter, which are the most sensitive species of minnows in the South Platte River. While Metro is working on the Platte River project, Dorsch said fishing will still be allowed even when constructing riffles, which are fast-moving sections of stream and other habitat improvements farther down the river. The scientists will continue to monitor the quality daily and how much sediment is released during construction efforts. We don't want that sediment going downstream and impacting aquatic life. My staff and I are out here every day checking what's going on and and what's gone wrong. If there are problems, we will correct it, said. The Metro Water Recovery scientists didn't work, didn't go unnoticed in saving the aquatic life on the river. They received the National Environmental Achievement Award from the National Associations of Clean Water Agencies, NACWA, for the South Platte River Aquatic Life Habitat Improvements Projects, according to a news release. This fall, The honorees will be recognized at the NACWA's Winter Conference in Sonoma, California. We love getting awards, but, like most biologists, we come in to do our job, Dorsch said. It's nice to get the award, Harmon added. People aren't aware of the work we do, so it's kind of nice to get some recognition and people realize we're out here on the river. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock.
1: Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from Denverite and Westward. From Denverite, I'll be reading, Denver comic Darius Dinkins speaks candidly about his experience in the city's comedy scene, by Isaac Vargas, and... Why Homelessness Solutions Aren't Working and What the Unhoused Need, According to 828 People Experiencing Homelessness, by Kyle Harris. From Westward, I'll be reading, Are Wolves an Experimental Population? The Answer Could Affect Reintroduction, by Katie Cheshire. And, His E-Bike Was Stolen Twice, But Dave Wolf Is Still on a Roll, by Connor McCormick-Kavanaugh. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. These first two articles are from Denverite. Denver comic Darius Dinkins speaks candidly about his experience in the city's comedy scene, by Isaac Vargas. Darius Dinkins, 23, had a moment's notice to commit to opening for the famous American comedian Hannibal Buress at Denver's High Dive, 7 South Broadway, earlier this year. He and his girlfriend had turned in for the day when he received a text at 6.37 p.m. from Al Jackson the co-host of the nationally broadcast talk show, Daily Blast Live. Yo, yo, this is Al Main. Are you in town tonight? Jackson's message read. Dinkins was suddenly given a 10-minute slot at 9.15 p.m. that same day. I remember just pacing in my living room, waiting to hear back until I got the confirmation, he said. Dinkins is a member of Denver's Slam Nuba and hosts Jokes and Jerks, a comedy show every first and third Thursday at Penthouse Caribbean, 1600 Champa Street. And he has seen some bright lights in the past year which have propelled his career. They include a set in 2022 at the world-famous New York Comedy Cellar, where comedic legends like Dave Chappelle, John Stewart, and Robin Williams have passed through, just to name a few. As soon as I walked inside, the first dude I saw was Godfrey, Other people were talking about Hulu and Netflix specials, he said. In the cellar, the lights were pretty bright. It's like I swam across a lake that day. So, now, what is a pool? I might have folded for the Hannibal show if I hadn't swam across a lake. Dinkins is a self-described weirdo. Dinkins has floated around for most of his life. Comedy was his tool for observing the rapidly changing world around him. I was 13 or 14 on the bus listening to stand-up on Pandora, laughing out loud listening to Godfrey, he said. He grew up in a military family and spent years living in Greece, Missouri, and Kentucky before eventually landing in Colorado where his mother had family. He graduated from Grandview High School and briefly studied at Metro State University before dropping out to chase his comedic dreams. His father wasn't too fond of that. For a while, I had this joke that I'd tell other comedians. As a comedian, you only have two options for a relationship with your father. Either it's really terrible, or he's dead, Dinkins said. But he finally came to a show two years ago, and I got my third option. Dad is now on board. Dinkins spoke candidly about what it's like to be a black comic in front of white audiences. You have to be careful. Careful about what you're saying, how you're saying it, and what it is conveying. Are they laughing at what you're saying, or are they laughing at you? Are they laughing at your ideas, or they are they laughing at the black dude in the room, Dinkins said. Whether you signed up for it or not, you're a representative, and you don't want to make jokes at the expense of black people. But it also depends on how deep a comic is going to think about that. Thinkins is committed to growing the comedy scene for everyone in the city. At the Black History Month Comedy Showcase, presented by Slam Nuba and hosted at Redline Contemporary Art Center, Dinkins brought in comedians with all sorts of accolades. It included Mason King, who had headlined at the famous Apollo Comedy Club in New York, Mecca Moe from HBO's Game Theory and the New York Comedies Festival's 2022 list of comics to watch, Park Hill comic Tyree Dillard, who performed with J.B. Smoove and is a frequent performer at Denver Improv, and Chanel Hughes, who is a semi-finalist in the annual Comedy Works New Faces competition and has performed at festivals across the country. In the Denver comedy scene, is a group of people giving the same $40 back and forth, Dinkins said, in reference to a community of comedians that book one another and produce shows around the city. The scene is good. We're not L.A., New York, or Chicago, but we're not a nothing city. The issue is not a matter of talent. Talent is here. It's a matter of exposure. The people who come to my shows often tell me I was their first comedy show, especially people in my age bracket. Dinkins is working with the Slam Nuba team to organize the Women's History Month showcase later this month. Potential is actually one of my least favorite words because it means something is not as good as it could be. But even I say it. Denver has potential. When I entered the comedy scene, it was tough for me. But I hope to leave it better than how I got there, Dinkins said. After the Hannibal Burris show, Dinkins asked Jackson why he chose to reach out to him for the opener slot. Hannibal told me he needed a young comic who had a future in comedy, Jackson told Dinkins. Dinkins says he'll never forget that. Why Homelessness Solutions Aren't Working and What the Unhoused Need, According to 828 People Experiencing Homelessness by Kyle Harris Many Denver candidates in the 2023 race discuss what resources people experiencing homelessness should accept. But there isn't much evidence political hopefuls are speaking with unhoused people about what they say they need. The Housing Advocacy Group, the House Keys Action Network Denver, or HAND, and the Western Regional Advocacy Project, RAP, just released Pipe Dreams and Picket Fences, a report of results from a massive 2022 housing survey that asked 828 people experiencing homelessness what sort of housing solutions advocates should fight for. The report also analyzed the state of public housing over the past decade and the failures of current homelessness prevention policies. If we are working to end homelessness, as is so often stated, this work must be directed by houseless people themselves, the report states, Lived experience offers an intimate understanding and ability to identify current and foreseeable obstacles that perpetuate this ever-present issue. This report provides direction for and by housing houseless people around the ca- kind of housing sought, the priorities, desires, barriers, pathways to accessing, and support needed for housing. In recent political debates, some candidates have speculated that many unhoused people simply don't want housing, The results of the survey suggest that that isn't true in the vast majority of cases. Between 93% and 99% of houseless people want some form of housing, the report states, but four walls and a roof aren't necessarily enough. People want safety where they're staying, their freedom and community, according to the report. Housing needs to offer residents the basics, the ability to control the temperature, restrooms with showers, and accessible locations. So-called affordable housing isn't actually attainable by most people experiencing homelessness, Hand reported. At least 88% of people surveyed need housing priced below $1,000. At least 60% needed to be priced under $600. And at least 12% needed to be free. Over 50% of people say they can't afford housing because they don't have access to money. And 38% can't afford it because of bad credit scores that disqualify them from renting. But there are other issues that make securing housing tough. 35% of people surveyed don't have a phone. Nearly 33% lack official documents, and nearly 32% have felony charges. For people who secure housing, keeping it can be tough. For 63%, the main barrier to staying housed is needing some sort of financial support. Other top issues that allow people to stay housed include being allowed to invite guests into their spaces, needing help navigating paperwork and bureaucracy, legal support, or mental health support. Curfews, restrictions on guests, staff room checks, religious requirements, and bans on roommates or partners block people from choosing some housing options. Houseless people rightfully lack faith in the housing system, according to the report. Their doubt is backed by years-long waitlists, abysmal housing lottery odds, and a dependency on service providers and case managers as gatekeepers. People interviewed for the survey said they waited more than two years on waitlists and for nearly four years to actually secure housing. Of the people interviewed, 36% lived in shelter. While housing vouchers are one of the common tools used to get people housed, Only 44% of the people surveyed had accessed housing or knew someone who had through a voucher. And just 28% of people preferred vouchers to pre-built affordable housing units. Landlord discrimination, the need for housing navigation services, and the struggle to find housing proved to be barriers for people using vouchers. The study also looks at the erosion of public housing over the past 10 years and a shift toward market-based solutions that Hand argues do not meet the actual needs of unhoused people. According to the report, the U.S. has lost 228,289 low-income public housing units, and Denver has lost 731 public housing units. The alternative strategy for providing housing has been a voucher system, which Hand says in its report, has failed for the majority of people who receive vouchers. In 2021, five months after receiving vouchers through the D- Denver Housing Authority, over one month beyond the current 120-day expiration, only 77.